So they basically targeted every single person in that assisted living facility to the point where they were lined up at Target with this form thinking, I gotta fill this out. One day she received a call. She said that it sounded just like me. Somehow they got some sort of voice changer or something, asked her for money. Welcome to another episode of the Big Picture Business Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us. And today we have an amazing guest. So excited to introduce you to Scott Schober. Hi, Scott. Hey, great to be here with you guys. And we are so excited. We're going to talk about so many things, but specifically cyber security. This is, it's kind of a hot topic with myself and my clients because I'm constantly telling them to be careful with their kiddos involving anything on the internet, cybersecurity, all that. But you just came out with a book recently that focuses on senior cybersecurity. And so I'm really excited to talk about that because I feel like it's overlooked a lot. We don't think about our elders that really need some help that can be easily taken advantage of, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's kind of interesting because after writing my first book, Hacked Again, which was really the tale of myself and my company being targeted, where we had, you know, our website had details. DOS attacks and where they flooded it. We couldn't do e-commerce. Our Twitter account was taken over, which was embarrassing. My credit card and debit card were were hacked for the business as well as myself personally. Then finally, I had $65,000 stolen from our checking account in the business. And I'm like, this is serious. And the problems just kept getting worse and worse. became federal investigation, paperwork, phone calls, emails, finally got all the money back. But in the process of it all, as a security company, a cybersecurity company, it was kind of embarrassing. I didn't really want to tell anyone because I'm thinking, who's going to buy tools from us? We sell them to the government. This is ridiculous. And I got a call one day. I was doing an interview in New York City, coming off Bloomberg. And I remember my phone ringing and it was the Associated Press saying, hey, we heard your company got hacked. We're doing a story, an exclusive feature on companies that are hacked. Would you go on the record and tell us what happened? I'm like, oh gosh, this is embarrassing. No, I don't want to tell them. So I kind of sat back, took a deep breath. And I said, well, okay, I I will share the story, but only if you let me tell the mistakes that I made and the things that I've learned since. So hopefully other people won't go down the same path that I went. And and hence it happened. Book took off, did really well, started speaking about it, then wrote a second book, Cybersecurity is Everybody's Business, when I realized this affects all of us. But the one area to, to your point, seniors, nobody's helping seniors. So I said, let me start looking up and find out what there is. Because my father and mother, they're, they're seniors. My grandfather at the time, he was 99 years old and, and he was very avid computers, his background. He worked at Bell Labs for 40 some years, launched the first Telstar satellites. It was very techie, but always every weekend I go to visit and there are password problems and loading software. And is this a hacker or not? I'm constantly answering, answering questions. There's got to be something out there that's going to help people. I looked and guess what? There are a couple books and they all talk down to seniors like they were dummies. Mm. It was embarrassing. It was insulting. And it got me kind of annoyed. And I said, I'm going to write a book that's catered to the audience of seniors or elderly or the caregivers to seniors that will instead talk to them and empower them and make them feel important. Let them feel comfortable to use the internet, computers, technology, smartphones, and not be embarrassed. And that's what I set off to do. And the way I did it was I started doing research and I talked to seniors, not just those that I was related to, but went to, to assisted living facilities and 
nursing homes, anybody that would listen to me, I would ask them questions and I interviewed them. And I, and I basically got to see how frustrating it is to be a senior. I got to write a book. This, this is important now. And the one thing that was important to me, and I work with some others that helped with the editing process because I'm not a great writer per se. I had to learn how to write in this whole ordeal. And they said, well, the font has to be this size and that, 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 all the, all the stuff in the world of publishing. And I said, no, I, I disagree. I want a big stinking font. So I don't have to put my glasses on. And more importantly, my reader doesn't have to. And they said, no, that's not the way it goes. This is the industry standard. Here's the size of the book. And, da, 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 da. and I finally said, no, I'm holding the line here. I don't agree. And I'm glad I held the line because so many people, it's one of the first things that I get back is they say, oh my gosh, I can actually read the book. It's a font that's not so small that I have to squint or put my magnifying glasses on. Or I've learned it's very important in writing a book to focus in on your audience more than your own opinion or anyone else's opinion for that matter. And I, I think um, that was kind of like a life lesson to me as far as a writer. I struggled writing my whole life and reading. I wasn't really gifted at that, which sounds kind of ironic being somebody that's written three books going on to book number four now. But I think it's really important that you listen to others around you and get advice. And, and one thing that, that kind of stood out to me was when I was in college for my, my undergraduate studies, I took a course as an elective creative writing. And we had to write like children's books and all these other things. And I was very nervous. I got into the class and it was 30 something students there. This professor was, you know, a writer that was written uh, dozens of books that sold his entire life. And, and he really knew how to, to write. I got there and I looked around and it was all women. Mm. I was the only guy in the class and I'm very intimidated. And, and the professor, I, I go up to him and I'm just to introduce myself. And he, he looked at me and he goes, do you know anything about computers? I said, yeah, I'm a computer science major. Why? He goes, they're forcing us to write with computers this year. I know nothing about computers. If you know about computers, maybe you can help. And I said, oh, great. I know nothing about writing. If you can help me learn to write, I'll help with computers. He goes, great. Teach the girls how to write and use the computers and <laughs> we'll work together. You'll get an A in the course. And sure enough, I got an A in the course, but it it gave me this much information how to write. And I thought that was a very powerful point in my life when I realized you can learn to write if you stick to it and learn from others. Don't be so stuck in your ways. Over time, you can improve the craft. And I think that's important to constantly refine it and get better at it. So I always say by the time I've written 10 books, I'll be a good writer, hopefully. I love the high aspirations for 10. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Scott, you are the president and CEO of Berkeley Valtronic Systems, which is based in New Jersey, where you provide world-class wireless test and security solutions. How did you get into this exactly? It's kind of an interesting backstory. I grew up into it. This is the only job I've ever had in my entire life, which is kind of strange. Most people I hear hop careers every couple of years and do this and do that. From sixth grade, I started learning to solder and learning about electronics. The business was out of our home. It was founded by my father, still our CTO, but he's since retired. This year, we're celebrating 50 years, which is kind of awesome as a second generation family business. I'm very proud of that. We've always been the type of company that focuses on niche design solutions. People come to us and say, hey, I got a problem. Can you provide a solution? And we provide the whole gamut, everything from you know laying out circuit boards, writing the software, doing all the research and development, building the product, delivering it, supporting it. So growing up from sixth grade on, that's all I ever knew. It was part of my life. In seventh grade, I became the president of the computer club. I was a game freak, I guess you could say. My father, for a number of years, was hired and was the, the vice president of the research labs at Atari. 
my background was gaming. And technically, I guess I was really a hacker and a, and a pirate. I would copy games, every game known to man for Atari and Apple computer, I would illegally copy and then trade games for people. It was never for monetary gain, I like to point out. So anybody hearing this won't arrest me. But being surrounded in that environment was kind of exciting. It was cutting edge. So I got to see and meet the guys that launched the first game, E.T. on Atari, and shake their hand. And I was actually hired, myself and my brother, who's also my co-author, Craig Schober, out of uh, Los Angeles, our other office. We got to debug the games. We were, were actually compensated with all the pizza we could <laughs> eat and all the games we could play for free if we would actually document every bug. It was kind of the early days of bug bounty, if you're familiar with that bug bounties are when you find vulnerabilities in companies' software and you're paid handsomely. We were paid handsomely by getting all the free games. They would deliver us two arcade games every month and then we would trade them in. So before the arcade game was released, we would get to play them, write down any bugs we discovered as well as for, for the Atari 2600, 400, 800, 5200 systems. They gave us everything and we just played. And, and for a kid, that was kind of a dream. We developed a few interesting pieces of hardware that we would take our friends' cartridges, play plugged them in and we would copy them. So all of our cartridges didn't have the original labels on them. They were ripoffs, but it was kind of fun just to copy all this stuff. Then I got involved in those early days of, this is pre-internet, so I'm dating myself now, the early days of acoustic modems where you'd have a 110-board modem, you would plug it in and you would talk to a system op, a, a SISOP, and you would have the early days of bulletin boards and trading games and hacking passwords. And I really got engrossed in that to the point where I never really slept and just became a geek. And I think a lot of that background story I'm sharing with you just helps put in perspective the importance of whatever you do in life, in your business, if you want to be a startup or a business or an entrepreneur, you got to have passion and love what you do. So in a sense, if I go back to sixth grade and seventh grade and throughout my college career, I'm still doing what I love to do. I'm immersed in things like robotics and technology and wireless and cybersecurity and media, all these things that I went to school for and got a formal education. I went to Duquesne University and New York University for graduate studies. I'm still doing today. I'm still applying in my day-to-day -day career. And it's so it's, to me, it's got to be fun. You got to love what you're doing, whether it's you're speaking about it, writing about it, teaching others about it. It doesn't matter. But being engrossed in it gives me the energy to keep going and get excited for the next day's challenge. Yeah. And there's, you know, a lot of people who would love that type of job that you were talking about where you're just playing video games all day and like finding bugs and <laughs> letting the companies know and getting paid well for it. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's exciting stuff. I wish I could say I'm doing that today. I'm not. I'm running a company. We're a hardcore engineering company and we're, we're developing test tools. We're familiar with our smartphones and going from one generation to the next. We have 4G, the fourth generation of phones. Now it's a massive migration to the fifth generation of phones. So to me, I'm kind of a technologists always looking to the future, where we are technology today, but what's coming around the corner that a lot of people don't know about and then integrating that into our products, into our designs, and then also educating people about it. And, and it's nice because I always say I, I, I serve the path of where wireless crosses cybersecurity. That intersection is exactly where I live and helping people and educating people in that narrow niche. So that leads me to a question then, because a lot of people that use the internet, they're on social media, they're just you know thinking, oh, I'm just on my profile. I'm just doing my own thing. What would you say to why cybersecurity should 
should be everybody's business? Great question. I would say probably initially because we all have a digital footprint. In other words, what we put out there, especially on social media, it's, it's kind of ironic. I always joke about this. We're too social on social media. So if I'm on this podcast, I'm going to promote it and talk about it and all the great things and the great conversation that we have, and hopefully people will subscribe and so on and so forth. However, where I got to be careful is if I go outside that boundary and start saying, hey, here's pictures of my family, or here's where I traveled on vacation. And you start to divulge a little bit too much, too social on social media can bite you in the butt because now somebody can target not only your house, but your computer, hack in through your Wi-Fi. They can do an account takeover of your social media. I was dealing with that earlier this week. I, I did a segment on uh, cybercrime radio, older gentleman. 75 years old, had his Facebook account compromised. Then they took over his account and they started to now contact all of his friends on Facebook saying that he was involved in going to these visiting porn websites and so on and so forth and trying to now lure them into the scam. It's really all about divulging personal information socially engineering this out of people so they in turn can what perform identity theft so they can compromise your credentials and sell it on the dark web there's so many different scams and things going on which is what i love about the world of cybersecurity. you got to keep learning every single day because the cyber criminals are doing that they're constantly modifying their approach so they can exploit vulnerabilities so you got to almost stay one step ahead of them be it with technology be it with understanding understanding the latest scam i always say you have to think like a thief, think like a cyber criminal, just to keep up and to battle them, to stay ahead of them. Very, very important. One of the things that kept happening to me on social media, and I finally got wise to it years later, but I've had my identity stolen, my, my face, my photos, so many times. My face has popped up on dating profiles for people who I don't know. It's obviously not me. And then something else that I, I realized that I was doing when social media first became so huge is I was geolocating myself everywhere. Like, oh, I'm here, mm -hmm. I'm here. It's basically just saying, hey, I'm not home. <laughs> you know, I'm not home. Know where I live. Come steal all my stuff. And so so after a while, and I think it really clicked after I had my my daughter, I realized, okay, first of all, nobody needs to know where I am all the time. Nobody cares. And also, yeah, it's I'm just giving away so much information. I think it's important to your point because you, you, you make a great point that we actually can control our digital footprint. A lot of people don't realize that. And what do I mean by that? Simple tips that I, I suggest to people in the instance where I shared about the, this, this gentleman, this 75-year-old this man that his Facebook account compromised. First question I asked him, I said, I'm curious. Did you use two-factor authentication? Uh, no. Takes too much time. Okay. It's free. It's not that much time. You get used to it. I do it for Zoom even. It's something as simple as this. It's a pain, but I always balance out trading security over convenience. It wins every time. So it's important to realize that. In the world of social media, you can also do simple tricks. You can do things such as not geotag your photos. You can do simple things such as not use your actual birth date when you set up your social media account. So every account that I set up for social media, I use a different birth date. If somebody's trying to perform identity theft or take out credit in my name, they call the issuing bank and they pretend they're Scott Schober and the bank says, oh, Mr. Schober, what's your birth date? And then they say December 12th, 1952. Eh, conversation over, wrong birth date. 
Well, they pulled that off social media. I have about 20 different birth dates for all the different accounts that I've set up there. So you're sending little curveballs in the world of social media that help you actually have a secure posture in the world of cybersecurity. Security challenge questions. You go to log on to your bank and you're, you're, you know, you put in your username. Maybe it's your email, your password that hopefully it's long and strong, 12 to 15 characters, obscure letters, uppercase, lowercase, numbers, something impossible to remember, super secure. But the problem is what do you put in for your security challenge questions? What high school did you attend? If you put it in Edison High School, which I attended, guess what? 30 seconds, I can do a scan on Google and find that out. Right. It's not secure. I would actually be more secure putting in password one, two, three for every security challenge question than the actual truthful answer. Because those could be either socially engineered or searched on a search engine. So putting security in our control and using social media for its intent, but balancing that out really can make you much more secure. Those are great tips. And I haven't heard them before, which is great too, because we've actually done a cybersecurity book for a client and that those things weren't mentioned. So I think that's great. And what do they cost? Think about that, Rory. Yeah. (laughs) That's the part that I'm amazed at. Oftentimes when I'm hired to go in to speak, I'll get drilled with people. Well, wait a second. Well, what antivirus software do you use? And and, and what is this you use? And what anti-keylogger? And I say a lot of things you don't have to spend money for. Why don't you start with the things that are free? That's a lot better than going out and spending to 10 different sources. Again, I'm not against antivirus software, virus checkers, this and that. They actually stop about 20% of all viruses. And I always bring that out to people and they go, well, what do you mean 20% they stop? Well, what do you think about the other 80%? They actually get through. That's why we're all falling victim to cybersecurity. It doesn't exactly work. They're important, but just as important as that is updating your security patches on applications. Just as important as that is updating your operating system on a regular basis because those security patches are put in there to stop the zero days where there's no known exploit or patch to take care of that vulnerability. We don't think about that as consumers or business owners that much. We just look and go, oh, I don't want to click this. It's going to take 10 minutes to update. But they're that important because it's actually going to take care of the cybersecurity issues for us. So many things. I It continues to baffle me. I'm just thinking about social media and email as well, where these things take minimal time to set up properly. Like, for example, change your password every, how often do you recommend? Great thing that you bring up. The industry always taught us what? change your passwords every 90 days, every 60 days, every every year, all these things. Guess what? Statistically, the more often you change your password actually increases your chance of being hacked. Wow. It's counterintuitive. So just because people are telling you that doesn't necessarily mean it's safer or better. It gives another opportunity for a hacker to get in there and compromise your password. That being said, I'll balance that out with, it's more important, in my opinion, to change your passwords when you need to change your passwords. What do I mean by that? If you knew your password, Rory, got compromised on LinkedIn today and you were told that, what would you do? Go and change it. Go and change it. How do you know if your password was compromised on LinkedIn today? You could actually subscribe to a service that crawls the dark web. The dark web is the internet's underbelly where all the information that's been stolen can be sold. When my credit card was compromised, my bank account was compromised, it all ended up on the dark web where hackers can somewhat anonymously buy and sell stolen credentials. The way the dark web works is it allows anonymity 
anonymity because it bounces around IP traffic to different relays around the world, doesn't cost anything. You don't know the specific URL to enter, and it can't be indexed from a traditional search engine. So in other words, you have to know the specific site to enter to go to that dark web website where things can be bought and sold. Typically, if you're familiar with cryptocurrencies, digital wallets, Bitcoin, which we see go up and down like a roller coaster, that's what's used. Digital currency that can buy illegal things such as credit card numbers and compromised information, so on and so forth. That's typically what happens with all of that type of stuff. Understanding the ecosystem of cyber criminals helps us to stay safe, to kind of avoid those worlds. If you subscribe to a server, I use Cyberlytica. They crawl the dark web and scan to see if any of my email addresses and passwords or personal information appears. They send me a report. Now I say, ooh, my email was compromised in Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever other social media site or something else we're banking. I immediately go in there to your point, Roy, and I change that password. I make it long and strong. I make sure two-factor authentication is set up before the cyber criminal can do an account takeover and then it's too late. So again, having proactive means to actually respond to something, to me, that's actually more important. Now you could subscribe to Experian or LifeLock or whatever. They monitor your credit and they monitor all these other things. But guess what? When you're alerted for that, it's usually after the fact. Yeah. How proactive is that? You can't do anything about it. That's what bothers me. Like people always say, oh, I got compromised. Uh, my credit card does, you know, I subscribe to LifeLock. And I'm like, all right, that's good. Tell me how well that's going. Again, nothing against LifeLock. It is important to get notified if somebody's trying to steal your credit or this that. To me, more proactive though, what did I do? I went and froze my credit. Now nobody could steal my credit. Nobody can impersonate me. Nobody could steal my identity as, as what you were mentioning. You, have, you were a victim of identity theft. If you take proactive steps, oh, and by the way, to freeze your identity so you don't become a victim of identity theft, what does it cost you again? Zero. Took me one hour to do it. It's a pain dealing with those three bureaucratic credit bureaus and this and that. But guess what? Once it's done, it's done. So again, trading security for convenience and vice versa. That's important. What do you ask them when you're saying, hey, I want to freeze my credit? I just tell them, I said, I would like to freeze my credit. And I have to call all three of the agencies, Experian, TransUnion, and I forget the other one there. Did I want to do it? No. Do I trust them? Absolutely not. I mean, and look at Equifax. They hold all of our information. I think they got more than 60% of all Americans' personal information. They were compromised and breached. And then they, in turn, I was frustrated because they're trying to sell me monitoring software <laughs> and services and everything else. I said, you screwed up the first time. I'm not going to trust you and pay you for that. But unfortunately, you have to go through them to make sure that your credit is freezed. And, and you can do the same thing if you have children. A lot of people are now trying to take out identity theft and credit in your child's name. So they may not find out until they register for college or go to get their first car. And now suddenly they realize, geez, I racked up a ton of debt. I never even realized this because somebody stole it. Or as sad as it sounds, somebody is deceased. You have to follow certain steps to make sure that you properly file all the paperwork. Otherwise, somebody may try to take out credit and maybe your deceased parent's name or relative's name. It's, it's a sad world out there, but we have to be proactive and do these things. Most of the things that I try to encourage people to do cost you time, not money. 
Yeah. So then if um, if you're needing to unfreeze your credit, say you're buying a home or something, you just call them up and say, hey, I need to unfreeze my credit temporarily. Yep. And, and you're given when your credit is frozen, I was given a PIN number. So I have to give them that PIN number. I call it dethawing my credit in a sense, because I could say, I'd like to dethaw my credit. I'm applying for a mortgage or buying a car. And in 30 days, I would like it to automatically be refrozen again. Or you could permanently unfreeze it. You, you have the choices, but you dictate to them. And, and again, they're government agencies. They're, they're there to help and service you to the best of their ability. But you control the magic thing with, with your pen. I always say, keep it locked in a safe, safety deposit box. Don't lose it because you really do need that. Otherwise it makes it really a pain in the butt to try to unfreeze something when you lose your master code. Yeah. It reminds me of the guy who lost his Bitcoin account information. It was like $400 million or something. <laughs> yeah. There is literally, and I follow the world of cryptocurrency um, often, there's billions and billions of dollars that are just basically lost because people lost their password to get into their digital wallet or into their account if they have an ICO. It's kind of scary, isn't it? A lot of lost money out there. In fact, there's actually businesses in the past few years that have been started up, which is a brilliant idea, and they're in the recovery business. They will try to use tools and techniques to hack the password because typically you only have so many times and you lose it. If they get a successful hack and get into the digital a wallet, for example, where there's a lost password, they keep 20 or 30% of the, the, the funds so they can make a lot of money if, they, if they're successful. I want to go back to what you were saying about you know changing your passwords, because one of the things I ran into was being forced to change my password if the wrong password was used, only a single attempt, single attempt, and then you're forced to change it. What is going on with that? How do we get around that if we're being forced to change our passwords constantly just because we entered it wrong one time? Unfortunately, you're really held hostage to the application that has outdated and antiquated security protocols that are forcing you to do that. I hate to pick on anyone, but we, we deal a lot with the government, a lot of uh, defense companies and agencies there. And unfortunately, I have to routinely update my password every 90 days religiously or else they lock me out and it's a pain to get around it. They have even in there that they don't store old passwords, this and that. However, if you ever try to enter the same old password you did, it says, no, you used this password before. Mm -hmm. And I sit there and go, oh, that's interesting. They don't store the password. How would they know that? I don't think it's always the latest and greatest security that's implemented across the board, even in government agencies and even cybersecurity companies. Oftentimes you hear the thing that an electrician's house, none of the outlets work or the lights are always out. And there's some truth, even those in the industry of cybersecurity don't always practice what they preach and don't always have the best of cyber hygiene. So I find it imperative as, as I educate and talk to people, especially those in the cybersecurity industry, I, I ask for a raise of hands. I say to people in the audience, I say, hey, you guys are security professionals here. There's a thousand people in the audience. Raise your hand if you actually reuse the same password on multiple login sites. And guess what? Every time more than half the people sheepishly kind of raise their hand up. What does that tell you? We're creatures of habit. We're lazy. We think it won't happen to me until it happens to me. So even if we understand the risks and things, we're very accustomed to, to take the easy path out and be lazy. And that's not good. So sometimes I have to share the doom and gloom or the fear a little bit. I don't like to do that, but it makes an impact to people in the audience. In some cases, when I've, I've been hired to come and speak, what I'll do is a little recon before I go in. And I'll actually link in with a lot of the people that are attendees. I'll get a list of registered attendees. I'll link in with them and I'll try to do little things to see if I can get into their accounts. Nothing malicious. I'm not stealing anything, but just to show 
show them how far you can go by socially engineering, connecting with people. And it's kind of scary how many people will divulge information, personal information that will accept them, accept you into their friends just because there's some commonality. And that's really how effective social engineering works. If I want to get in the door, what am I going to do? If you're familiar with um, the movie, Catch Me If You Can, Frank Abagnale Jr. I attended a, a conference. I think it was uh, IBM held a cybersecurity conference down in DC and I was invited to it. And it was kind of cool. He sat right in front of me and he was giving the keynote. So afterwards, I was, I was enthralled to, to sit down and speak to him. I read his book, watched the movie a bunch of times, did a book review on his book. It was so awesome and, and became associated with him and friends with him. And he shared a lot of things, but the ability to social engineer is oftentimes just learning the nomenclature, learning the acronyms that a particular industry uses. There's certain terminology that pilots use. If you use that pilot speak, they'll open the door for you. If you go into a hospital and you talk about certain things that hospitals use, you could walk right through. You put a, a code on. I remember one time going into a hospital and somebody, I guess I was dressed in suit and tie coming from something. I don't remember what. And for some reason, they thought I worked there and they started asking me things. And I just pretended, oh, they probably think I'm a, a doctor and executive here. Let me just tell them, oh yeah, go up to the third floor of this elevator. Oh, great. Thank you, sir. Is it okay if I go to that? Yeah, sure. You're clear. You can go to that. So if you speak the terminology, people believe in you because we're creatures of habit in that we also believe we're trusting. In the world of cybersecurity, you trust nobody. It's sad, but it's true. You have to question it first. And that's important. Everything from simple as an email that you get that might be a phishing attempt to somebody trying to come in the front door, somebody showing you credentials. It's important to stop check and just qualify it to yourself. Prove to yourself that person is authorized. That person should have that level of access to this information or should be allowed to go through this point. Very important. There's a lot of scams where people will call and say, I'm from this place. And then please verify this information. And then people just give the information away. And then those people being the hackers have that information and then can go and use that against you. Absolutely. Yeah. You make a great, great point there. In fact, I got a call not too long ago. One of my banks is Bank of America and somebody called oh, I'm from Bank of America, the fraud department. And Mr. Schober, your, your account's been compromised. I said, oh, really? And they said, we just need to confirm some information to verify who you are so we could prevent these fraudulent charges to go through. Is that okay? I said, sure. How do I know who you are? And oh, well, sir, you could look on the phone and, and see the number 1-800-blah-blah-blah is Bank of America's number. So of course, what do I do? And what does everyone else do? You go on Google or you go on Bank of America. Oh yeah. Okay. 1-800. The number is legit. And then they usually will divulge one more piece of information to make it seem credible. Mr. Schober, the last four digits of your social security number are one, two, three, four, correct? Or the last four digits of your debit card are one, two, three, four, correct? And then what happens in your mind? You think, wow, okay. This is the fraud department. They know information about me. They've got a legitimate number, but you don't realize they simply spoof the number with an app that costs $5 a month to make it look like it's the 1-800 number from Bank of America. They simply went on the dark web and looked up my the last four digits of my social security number or looked at my compromised credit card number on the dark web. They pieced together a couple pieces to make it seem credible. And the average person, when they hear that and they use those familiar the terminology, the acronyms, and they play on our fear. And they'll use things during the pandemic time that's tied to vaccines and just happens to be when you're thinking about getting a vaccine. When it's tax time, here it comes. It's all about tax refunds. They're going to utilize that. So again, when they employ fear and a sense of urgency, I always tell people, put the caution flags down. 
stop, question, make a phone call, enter the direct URL in at the top to make sure it's legitimate, test it, make sure for yourself before you start to go down that path. Because once you go down and start divulging information, it may be too late. One other little thing in in that example of, of the scam where I got a call that was from the fraudulent department, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. What I did to the person at that point, when I realized this is a scam, I said, oh, by the way, this is an important call and I really appreciate all you're doing. I don't want to lose this connection. In case we get disconnected, what, what's your name and your phone number? Click the phone call hung up. What did I do? I put the onus on them to divulge some personal information. That oftentimes breaks down the chain of their forced attack against you and puts them on the defensive. And now suddenly you realize, oh, somebody might be on to me, click. So use that to your advantage. It also gives you a minute to think. When you throw a question out to somebody, they have to process and think, and you can carefully listen to their response to see if they're legitimate or if they're a scammer. A couple of really intense scams that are, they're they are so good at what they do. Like, gotta give them credit. They're very good at what they do. But one that keeps, I mean, circulating like crazy, especially in, in my area, is uh, individuals getting phone calls saying they're gonna get their electricity shut off. And, okay. and they have just enough information to say, can we please get you know your, your credit card on file so we can charge you to make sure it doesn't get shut off in the next four hours, right? And people are freezing out here. Like, sure, let me get you my credit card, right? And they're just raking it in because it, it's like you said, based on that fear and that just, oh, I don't want this to happen. My grandmother passed away two years ago, early nineties. And was, I mean, the amount of scam calls that she would get was absolutely ridiculous. And she lived in a retirement community and she knew she, she was, she was hit to it. Right. So she'd kind of play with them. But one day she received a call. She said that it sounded just like me. Somehow they got some sort of voice changer or something. She said the conversation went on for a good five minutes where this person acting like me asked her for money, which I never would have done. You know, can, can I get your credit card number for this or that? And I call my, I, I called her Grammy. That's how I addressed her, not grandma. And as soon as she heard this person say, Hey, grandma, can I get this? She hung up because she knew then, but I can't imagine what, I mean, how scary that someone sounded just like me talking about, you know, senior and the scam and all that. I mean, do you have a chapter on that in your book <laughs> involving scam? to look out for? Actually, I do. In Senior Cyber, and, and I actually have documented in there some screenshots of scams. I step people through actual scams that either I've been involved with or others have. Like my grandfather, for example, he was involved in several different scams. One of them I'll share with you in short. It's I kind of laugh at it when I, I think back at it, but he got a phone call and they said to him, and here again, to put it in uh, balance or whatever, he's 99 years old. He doesn't drive. They said to him, you know, Mr. Schober, congratulations. You won, I think it was a thousand gallons of gas. And he's like, oh, really? I won? I'm a winner? Yes, because you filled out something and you were the, the one drawn and you won a thousand gallons of gas and da, da, da. And in his mind, he's probably thinking, I'm guessing, I don't drive, but I could give it to, you know, my grandchildren and my son and this and that. That's what I'm assuming because they said, well, we just need a small processing fee. We just need your credit card and it's going to be $8.95 and we're going to deliver it to you and da, da, da. And he says, okay. And he gave him the credit card. Next day, a couple thousand dollars was taken out of his account. Scam. Those type of things happen each and every day. Another one that happened, it was when my grandmother was also alive with him. They live in a community of assisted living. It's about 1,500 people. So it's a very large community. It's up in North Jersey. It's all interconnected, the buildings and everything else. Beautiful. Almost like you're on a cruise ship or something like that. He ended up getting something that started out with a call and it was supposed to be from 
his grandson. And they said, hey, grandpa, it's me. And then he said, is that is that you, Brian? Yeah, it's, it's me. It's me. I'm up in Canada. I got pulled over. We got arrested. I went with my friends. They had drugs in the back. It's not mine. But if we don't get $10,000 immediately, they're going to arrest us and we can't get back to America. My mom's going to be upset. Bah, bah, bah. And right away, he says, oh, no, you shouldn't take drugs. That's wrong. I told you that. And he goes, I know, grandpa. It wasn't me. It was the other kids I was hanging out with. Well, what do I do? Go down to the local target and get a wire transfer sheet, fill it out and fax it to this number immediately. But don't tell anyone. I don't want my mom to know. And I don't want that. So what happens? Grabs my grandmother. Let's go. And, and sure enough, just conveniently targets right across the street. So they run to target, they get in line and they got this pack of wire transfer sheets. And the woman at the cash register goes, uh, excuse me, can I just ask, why are you buying this? And guess what? 10 people behind them all had the same thing they were buying. So they basically targeted every single person in that assisted living facility to the point where they were lined up at target with this form thinking, I got to fill this out. Well, when they got back, obviously they called my aunt, my cousin, they're down in Georgia and he was down in Georgia. He's a fireman and he was working. He wasn't up in Canada. He wasn't arrested. He had nothing to do with drugs. The scheme seemed so credible that he bought right into it. And again, it was a sense of urgency. Don't tell anyone. Don't call my mom. Run, you know, Target happened to be across the street. So everything fell into place, which that tells me the cyber criminal had to do their homework. They did research, they took notes, and they did this focused, targeted event. If it wasn't for the woman at the register, my grandparents, I believe, would have been out of $10,000. Wow. So the, the importance of awareness and applying common sense to things. And that's why I always tell a senior, especially no matter what you're doing, phone call, email, letter, even a person off the street, someone knocks on your door, question it and make a phone call, phone a friend. Maybe it's your trusted son or daughter or, or relative. Just say, Hey, I got something. I got a phone call. They're asking me for my bank account, my social security number, this or that. When you bounce it off someone else, suddenly it, it levels the playing field because they're going to say, Whoa, grandpa. Paul, stop. It's probably a scam. Let me give me the information. Let me make a phone call. So important to communicate that. And that's part of what I share, I think, in senior cyber, empowering people not to be embarrassed. Ask for help from somebody, a trusted individual. It doesn't have to be a cybersecurity expert that you're going to call. It could just be a trusted family member. That's who I would recommend. Just to bounce the ideas off them to make sure that you're thinking clear because it's a moment of fear, anxiety, and emotion. When those things come into play, we tend to give in too quickly to cyber criminals. And that's what they want. I'm just dumbfounded at how, how good they are. They're really good. And, and sometimes I ask myself, I always ask myself the question like, and I live in this world, so it's, maybe it's a little different, but like I say, okay, a phishing attack. How stupid would somebody have to be to click on an, an attachment, an email from some of these people? Because they look so stupid, the language, the graphics, the this, that. But again, I stop, I analyze the raw headers. I see who it's coming from. Probably the average person doesn't do that. So I shouldn't say somebody's stupid. What's more important, look at statistics. Why do they keep doing it? More than 80,000 people every single day click on a phishing email attack that launches malware into their computer. 80,000 people every single day. That's why spam is so popular. It's free. Millions and millions of emails every day. They're only looking for somebody to respond to click on that. One out of 80,000 people that do respond, that's who their victims are. So it's not necessarily targeted at you or you or I. It's targeted at all of us who are innocent enough to click on it. And once we realize that, it puts it in perspective. And once you've clicked, they've tracked that, even if you don't open the attachments or anything like that. So even just by opening it, they know you're someone they should continue to target. 
Exactly. And, and to take that to the next step further, because you're absolutely right. When we are put in a situation, maybe a small business owner, and you've got a ransom demand and you say, geez, I didn't back up my data. If I don't pay this ransom, it's going to cost me dearly. Let me just pay the ransom. Guess what? The second you pay that ransom, you may or may not get the decryption key to unlock your files that are all encrypted. But what you do get, I guarantee it, is you get put on a list that they will try again and again and again to attack you. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. They cave too easily, pay the ransom. Ah, it's only X number of thousands of dollars. That ante goes up each time. 2018, the average ransomware payout to a small business was $5,000. 2021, the average ransomware payout was over $200,000. Do the math. You could see how ransomware is crippling businesses, putting companies out of business because it's that profitable. And that's why there is ransomware as a service, hire a hacker, 24-hour customer support. If you want to launch a ransomware campaign, they teach you there's how to videos, everything is out there, especially on the dark web to be a criminal. So I'm not encouraging people to go out there and be criminals, but I'm just saying, keep in mind, that's why it's so lucrative and so easy. Last month alone, I heard that there were 70 new cyber criminal startups that came onto the market, 70 new hacker groups that they know of. There's probably more than that. I was just going to say that they know of. It's growing exponentially. Ask yourself this. If you lived in Romania and and you could make, you know, a hardworking person there may make a few dollars an hour or go to college and spend a fortune if they they got accepted. Or you could sit in your pajamas in the basement and drink Coke and eat ice cream and become a hacker and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. What do you tend to choose? That's the problem. It's so lucrative. And on top of that, it's a faceless crime. If you were a bank robber, people go, oh, no, I don't want to have a gun, risk getting arrested, right? You go into a bank, you've got a mask on, probably, or a disguise, a getaway vehicle outside, so they could see you. They can hear your voice. They can check the gun. It serialized the money if it doesn't blow up with blue ink in your face. They see the license plate and the make of the car. There's so many tells that will get you caught if you try to be a bank robber. So what are bank robbers doing? What are gangsters doing? What are mafia doing? They're migrating over to the world of cybercrime because there, it's a faceless crime. You can do it from anywhere in the world. You can do it from Tahiti on the beach and be collecting people's credit cards by putting skimmers in gas pumps or ATMs and then go out and clone those cards and go sell them on the internet or the dark web and make a fortune. So when you start to understand how easy it is to be a cyber criminal, we realize how dangerous it is. I was presenting at one show talking about the dangers of skimmers and gas pumps and in ATM machines. Two individuals over the course of those two days approached me kind of privately, took me aside and started talking about skimmers. They knew I knew a lot about them because we provide tools that fight and combat skimmers. They were asking me questions that were a little bit too personal. And as I listened to them, I realized, I said, can I ask you a question? Are you a criminal? And they said, well, no, I'm not a criminal. Do you put skimmers in ATMs? And they said, well, yeah. I said, then you're a criminal. That's illegal. You're going to get arrested. How much do you make a week? They said about $40,000 cash. A week. Besides, you know, they're working a regular job, but they do that on the side, they said. You see how lucrative it is to be a criminal. The problem is it's so hard to catch them. It's so expensive to catch them. We've got our, as far as the world of cybersecurity, doing researchers and developing technology, hardware, and software, we have the odds stacked against us. We have to get it right every single time to stop a cyber criminal from coming into our organization. Cyber criminal, all they got to do is get it right once, and then they could walk away with, with a bankroll. It's sad. This has been incredibly frightening 
entertaining and enlightening all at the same time. Well, before we come to a close here, I, I want to ask you, what are some of the emerging cybersecurity trends that you expect to see in 2022? I think one of the things that that's kind of exciting and kind of scary as heck, I call it, is a combination of things. It's 5G, fifth generation wireless technology, which promises high speed, low latency, phenomenal coverage. No matter where we go, we're going to take our smartphone out and we're going to be able to press a button and instantly see high definition a movie. We're going to be able to interact with our home, our smart home, our smart car, smart offices because of IoT devices, Internet of Things devices. Everybody's connecting 20 billion, 50 billion, 100 billion of these IoT devices are predicted in the next few years. With IoT comes baked in security vulnerabilities. In other words, this low cost Nest thermostat or low cost smart camera that we're all installing in our homes, if we don't set them up properly with secure passwords, if we don't have the ability to up Date the firmware with security patches, which most of them are not designed to do that. Thieves will see these vulnerabilities and they will exploit them. They'll use that as the conduit to get into our home networks. In this world of pandemics, we're working remotely. So our home network is our tied into our business. So you see the dangers there. So they use that to piggyback and get into our corporations and perform large hacks. So remote access, we go back to multi-factor authentication is one of the few things that we can do in our control that can prevent those type of attacks. So looking forward, 5G and IoT are the two standouts to me that are going to be exploited. And and more specifically, it's probably some of the things like our smart cars. You look at the cars that we drive, you go buy a brand new Tesla or actually any other car. Guess what's in it? It's got Bluetooth. It's got a Wi-Fi hotspot. It's got a cellular modem. All 50 manufacturers, major manufacturers of cars are putting cellular modems in there so they can actually ping the car and see that it needs an oil change. They could push notification to us through our smartphone and apps that are tied into our car that we need to take it in for service. Those type of things are easy to exploit. And those are real concerns for the future, but we're buying it right now. We're the consumer, so we're the product. We're buying into that, not even realizing that in a year or two or three from now, that's the exploit that's going to compromise our life savings, our personal information our security, our family security. So I'm always one that's cautious to be an early adopter of technology. I say in one hand, I'm a technologist, which is kind of ironic slash hypocritical. I'm not the first to adopt it. Let a few other guinea pigs fall (laughs) for the problems and the hacks, then I'll adopt it, but I'll do it securely. And that's important to have the right balance when you look at technology. Wait till it's proven and secure. There's a fraction of, of a percent of the people, the population that will always buy the first iPhone, the first IoT device, the first computer, computer, it's not always the safest bet to do that. If you do it, don't bring it into your ecosystem. When I say that, your home office, your business, your friends and your family, because they too can be victimized from it. Yeah. I think Dominica and I are both the same way (laughs) with technology. Don't get me started on the metaverse. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Yeah. Last year was the first year I actually got a Facebook account. Oh, all right. I was forced because of some business that I do. I had no choice. So I had to either walk from the business or enter the world of Facebook. So I finally became victim of it. But even with things like that, it's okay to put out some fake information or disinformation. You're in control of that. Some of the things we talked about 
about earlier. So I actually do that. When I go on a trip, I'm not sharing photos when I'm on the trip. Two, three weeks later, I'm posting it. And it's funny because people will say to me, oh, I didn't know you're in Florida. Well, I'm not. I'm back. That was two to three weeks ago. They're like, Why'd you wait so long? It looks like you were just there. Well, I, I want to I be careful. So it's like maintain my digital footprint, as we talked about earlier, and be careful with that. Brilliant. To control your own digital footprint, the own narrative. We have control. You actually can. The the other thing I do, it sounds crazy. This is again, borderline paranoia. I contact Google. I contact Bing for my homes that I own. Everything is blurred out. Do street view and everything else. You look at my house and do a search. It's all blurred out. You can actually do that. You can contact them and ask them to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a simple email. Again, how much does it cost? Nothing. It's free. They're required by law to protect your privacy. It blocks out the license plate of my cars. If there's any people, my kids out in the yard, when the crazy Google car goes by, their faces are blurred out. My home is blurred out. My address is blurred out. You know, it can be challenging if you're trying to sell your home or Zillow or other things like that with real estate. You can unblock it just as easy as you block it. But again, it's a simple email. You have to explain the reason why. You want it blocked out and they have to respond within so many hours and actually do it. Protects your privacy. That's what's important. It's in your control. It's in my control. We just got to do it. Then do you say to them, well, I'm doing it to protect my privacy or how do you approach that? Yeah, I, I simply said, well, and in my case, this was I was compromised. I was hacked myself personally and my business. I had threats. I had stalking. I had several things that happened in my life, which is kind of scary. And I need to protect my children. I have to look out for my family and I need this done immediately. And boom, they did it. They did it. No, no questions asked. They didn't argue or this or that. You do have to have the knowledge and the wherewithal to actually follow through and let them know this is what needs to be done immediately. And they'll do it. That's a great tip. I know what I'm going to be doing this afternoon. That's that's a great tip. Yeah, all of these little tips and tricks. So I'm assuming it's in your your books, right? A lot of this stuff. When I speak in my books, I document, I share tips. And what I found is people that buy the book, I usually get a call or an email afterward and they'll say, oh my gosh, after I read your book, you scared the poop out of me. (laughs) And now- I froze my credit. I, you know, blurred my house. I did this. I did this. Anything else I should do? Anything new? You know, they kind of what I call take control of their digital footprint. And what it does is it allows them not just to be secure, but it allows them to feel secure. That's what's important. Where can uh, our listeners get your your book? Well, certainly they can go to my website is scottschober.com, but probably the easiest. Everybody likes a simple one button click of Amazon. If you're one of the 1 billion plus people that have a Prime account, Amazon, and just go there and you can hack again is there. Cybersecurity is everybody's business or senior cyber. They could buy that and get the free shipping and all the other fun stuff. Thank you so much for taking this time with us. It's been amazing. Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation. All right. That is it for this week. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.